Welcome back to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I'm Cameron, and with me as always is Michael. Hello, I'm using my imagination. I'm also using my imagination. I'm imagining myself in an arcade, talking to Marsha Kinder in the <laughs> mid-1980s. And no, I don't know what my parents do for work. <laughs> and also, I come to the arcade every day, and I eat ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I don't have any siblings. Michael, I, you have a sibling. No, I don't. Michael, you have. I know you have a sibling. No, no, they don't live with me anymore, and so they're not my sibling anymore. That's right. You ever read a book that's got an <laughs> appendix that's just interviews with children? <laughs> Saying the weirdest shit, and one of the children is the interviewer's own child, and so the interviewer in her notes is like, when I asked him why he said he didn't have a sister, <laughs> he said that she lived with her father and therefore was not his sister anymore. Is that what happened? Uh, it, she doesn't say that he's uh, uh, she's not his sister, but it's like uh, that is that is a thing that happens. Is she's talking to her son and she's like interviewing him, and he gives the response he is an only child, and so like later she has the opportunity to be like Victor, why did you say you were an only child? And he he says that he was confused by the fact that the the sister lives with. Uh, her father and therefore was thinking of himself oh, as a, right yeah i didn't catch the whole thing i caught that he she doesn't live with them anymore but i thought it just meant she was like way older i didn't i don't are they divorced oh, maybe maybe i don't are know. you inventing divorce talk about a talk about a book on psychoanalysis and oh, michael oh, lutz oh, is here oh, deventing oh. divorce divorces between people how about that yeah, I didn't. And here I am saying psychoanalysis is fake all the time. And, yeah, there we go. Yeah, I don't know. I just assumed that the kids were closer in age. Yeah, I think she's just way older. Oh, okay. I, I is my because uh, they don't seem to share a childhood like mm -hmm. even even remotely. So I see his name is. Let me see what this little kid's name is. Hold on, I'm flipping the page. Flipping the page. Mm -hmm. One moment. One moment. Okay. Victor Aurelio Bautista. Mm -hmm. His book, his quotation opens the book that we have not named yet. <laughs> a long time ago, there were no toys and everyone was bored. Then they had TV, but they were bored again. They wanted control. So they invented video games. Yep. This is my like, this is what fades in over a black screen before my uh, like 190 hour JRPG. <laughs> yes. That I made an RPG Maker, you know, 10 or whatever, mm -hmm. X, uh, in 2007. Uh, we're reading what we read. I know that you revealed in one of the previous episodes that we that we always read the book as we, uh, as we record mm -hmm. at the exact same time. I know you revealed that to people, a little peek behind the curtain, but let, let's keep the kayfabe going. Mm -hmm. uh, we read for this episode, Marsha Kinder is playing with power in movies, television, and video games from Muppet Babies to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, it is from University of California Press, and it came out in 1991 based on research done through the mid-1980s. Yep. Had you read this book before? Absolutely not. I Have you read any other Marsha Kinder? 
I have not. And I'm trying to remember, like, it was in doing this show that you discovered, I think, that this book existed. Because yeah, I don't remember where it, you you saw it cited in something we read. And you were like, wait a minute, Marsha Kinder wrote a book on blah? And that's how this came about. Yes, I don't remember what else we were reading. We not we might not have even been reading this. I might have been reading something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I just had no idea because I was familiar with Marsha Kinder. Marsha Kinder has written a few books, um, and is just like a well-known name. Is is an emeritus now, right? Mm-hmm. At, uh, USC. Um, but was just like doing the damn thing for like 30, 40 years, and uh, I just had no idea. <laughs> like I, you know, I went to be like, oh, Marsha Kinder wrote this, but kind of famous in terms of um. She's written on on a lot of different things, but one of the things I associate her very heavily with is psychoanalysis and kind of psychoanalysis and media studies, which is perhaps not shocking given that this book is itself all about psychoanalysis and media studies. But uh, media studies is they apply to children in particular. Um, And that's all I knew about it beforehand. But you would not... And so, and like in graduate school, I'd read some Marsha Kinder essays and things like that. But you'd had no... This is not part of like the, the world of English for you. Uh, no, like the definitely there's like, you know, uh, psychoanalytic film studies is is a thing that shows up. Um, but probably, probably because my area of study doesn't closely overlap with uh, Kinder's, uh, I never encountered encountered her name. Um, apparently, like, so her academic trajectory is actually really interesting. When I was looking into this, it's like she she has like, multiple distinct phases. Her Mm -hmm. PhD was in 18th century English fiction. Uh, and I had no idea. Yes, right. So she was like writing on on like uh, early novels, like Fielding and stuff, and sort of the um, the like metatextual uh, angles of those. Uh, and then uh, from there, she seems somehow right. I don't really know the maneuvers here, but like it's clear that this is what happens. She gets into complet. Uh, and the comp there seems to be like Spanish language literature, which then brings her into Spanish language film studies in a big way, which then swings around into more general media studies, uh, which I guess maybe kind of begins with this book. And then like the back half of her career is defined by a theorization of transmedia narrative as well as kind of uh, uh, cognitive studies and media. Mm hmm. Uh, I yeah, I don't think she's written anything else about kids, right? This is like her one kind of book on children. I think so. That seems to be the case. And this is, uh, it's very, uh, the reason Victor shows up here is that she says very clearly, like, this book was inspired by the process of raising a son and, like, seeing the way that he interacts with television and media franchises. Yeah, it's fascinating. Just interesting stuff. Uh, she's got on her website. Did you look at her website? Yes, I did. She has a full list of every student she's ever taught, like in a PhD capacity. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, a like very thorough website, and uh, even so, the the son who uh, Victor, who's like kind of the center of things here. Uh, there's a narrative she gives very briefly about his birth, where he was born, I think, twenty eight weeks premature. Mm. Um, and uh, you, you know, it's just sort of like the, the experience of like a, a, you know, a parent like dealing with all of that and like what it means. And apparently there was like a book on uh, parents of children who were born premature. And like she gave a 
testimony or like case study kind of thing for that. And so that gets cited in this book. And then also the whole thing is reproduced on our website. Oh, fascinating. You know, I was trying to think like, why is it, you know, why is it that I know about Marsha Kinder? You know what I mean? I'm not a psychoanalysis person. Right. Um, I didn't take any coursework in psychoanalysis. Like, you know, I mean, I did in a general, but I didn't take any courses that were just psychoanalysis, right? Mm-hmm. I was like, why do I know so much about Marsha Kinder? I'm looking through this list. I'm scrolling this list of students. Right on here is a fella named Angelo Restivo. Mm-hmm. And there's a little little dude by his name. It says, students whose doctoral committee I chaired. Mm-hmm. Angelo Restivo taught me in graduate school. Oh. He was one of my professors. That's <laughs> why I know Marsha Kinder. Because <laughs> Angelo. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense because, uh, you know, even though I would say maybe the you know back quarter of her career has the closest overlap to my areas of interest, uh, one of my thoughts in reading this book in particular was, wow, why haven't I seen this cited more? Because mm-hmm. uh, in like I hadn't heard of her before, even though we have these overlapping interests. So it seems like she is a little bit underread or undersighted. Uh, at least- I think definitely, like based yeah. on the past sixty something books we have read, right? Uh, definitely undersided in the field of game studies. I yes. can tell you that. Uh, the, the other thing, just to add to that really quickly, but my last piece of information about this is that I think what what one of the reasons um, that this part of her career is less well known is that after this, she did quite a lot of stuff in national cinemas mm. and psychoanalysis and its relationship to national cinemas. That's what Angelo did. Angelo, oh, okay. um, uh, his first book and maybe his dissertation too was on. Uh, it's called a book. Uh, it's not called a book. It is a book called <laughs> um, "The Cinema of Economic Miracles," and mm-hmm. it's about Italy. It's about Italian cinema, um, and that's the project I believe she worked with Angelo on. And so he worked with her to do a project on national cinema. She was a Spanish national cinemas person, person, I believe when she was working on that heavily, Angelo was working in Italian national cinema. So I think that might be it too, is like when she, her most uh, substantive, cause she's got multiple books on that, right? Mm-hmm. Just by mm-hmm. itself. And so I think maybe her, if she is most well known in film studies or media studies, it might be that piece that's most well known, and like that's probably pretty far away from you, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> in, in terms of interest. Yeah, uh, and and that's not to say that even the latter stuff, I think she went unrecognized for. Because one of the things, mm-hmm. another one of the things I saw while reading this was like, well, crap, here she is, like anticipating. Uh, multiple things that like Henry Jenkins is going to go on and write distinct books about, right? There are ideas that show up here in germinal form that are like entire books that Henry Jenkins writes. Uh, Mm -hmm. And her website has an interview with her and Henry Jenkins, like he's interviewing her. So like, absolutely like, you know, Henry Jenkins knows about that connection. Uh, It just seems like uh, uh, what was... You know, in a way that like that defined his career, it seems like maybe her career in like the broader sense was maybe more defined by uh, uh, the cinema studies stuff. Yeah. And so it's it's super cool. I'm, I mean, I'm glad we're reading the book. I'm glad we're able to kind of do this. And especially like for people maybe in, who are game studies, game studies people who might not explore too far beyond that. You know, one could think that Marsha Kinder is pretty far afield. But I, I think this book definitely for people who haven't read it. 
I'm glad that we read it. You know, I, I think it deserves a second or a third or a fourth look. And I think that there are things here, even though like I fundamentally at my core disagree with like the animating system that makes the book work. <laughs> I think most of the insights of the book, you don't need psychoanalysis to like make them mobile and do stuff with them. You know, there is in fact a book of psychoanalysis and children that really does not need psychoanalysis to, um, at the level of like claim, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you can say a lot of these things about children and development and time, um, by working through, you know, the Marxist tradition or by working through like the, um, you know, the, the pro Freudian anti Lacanian version of like Dulles and Guattari, right? Like, I'm just saying that like, if you, if you're like me and you hear our old friend psychoanalysis and you hear it and you go, uh Oh, I'm shutting off my ears. I'm getting mm -hmm. quiet. Just, uh, just know that you could, I think you can you can port a lot of this over to another system without losing too much um, specificity. Um, and notably, right, this is about this is a book that kind of hinges on, the, and it's a, a hinge you probably know way more about than I do, right? But the psychoanalysis to cognitivist maneuver, right? Mm -hmm. So we get a lot of like Winnicott child development and Piaget and a couple of other things too that you know I've. I've read in a game studies context and I've um, taught those things too. So, you know, it's, it's stuff that's at least mobile for lots of people, even if you're not like a dyed in the wool, here's what Lacan said uh, in 1971 kind of person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, as someone who is more friendly towards psychoanalysis, I also weirdly came out of this thinking like, you don't really need psychoanalysis for this book's power to, to hold. Yeah. Well, you want to dive right into it? Sure. Oh, oh uh, let, let's say, two, sorry, I, I just said that, and then backing up is actually helpful for two seconds, because, did you end up getting a physical copy of the book? I did not. Okay, so there's a physical, There, it's out of print, I believe, currently, but there are plenty of very affordable physical copies, like, running around, so if you want to get one, you can, but it's. A, did you then read the online version? Yes. Okay, so there's, like, an online, I don't have it pulled up in front of me, is it through the University of California Press website? Yeah. Uh, Yes. Uh, well, it's I don't know if it's their website or some sort of publisher they're affiliated with, but uh, and it also takes a while to load every time I tab away from it. Uh, yeah. But it's a part of yeah, it's the UC Press eBooks collection, formerly e scholarship editions. Hmm. But yeah, I think it's just like a decision. Like if you wanted to make it does take a long time to load. Wow. Mm hmm. <laughs> um. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's just like internal to them if they don't have something in print anymore. They just throw it up on the website. So mm -hmm. uh, if you want to read it, it is available online for free in an official source. Mm -hmm. So And it is uh, uh, rather uh, short and reads quick. Yeah, without the appendices, well, those interviews that we were talking about before, they appear in an appendices or appendices. But um the whole book up to that 172 pages and these are charitable pages you know what i mean mm -hmm. they're like big margins big print mm -hmm. so uh it's a real quick read you know mm -hmm. i read it in like three days in between doing some other stuff uh so very doable now without any more interruption by myself let's dive into this bad boy uh chapter one is called foreplay and other preliminaries Mm -hmm. uh, this is basically uh, it's a combination of things right it's like sort of the context chapter so this is where she talks the most about like her son and kind of experiences there and what brought her to do this 
Uh, and then it's also uh, kind of the theoretical chapter. Like, all of the chapters get a little theoretical. All of the chapters are dipping into psychoanalysis to some extent, but this is really the one where uh, I think she's setting up the game board, so to speak. Uh, mm-hmm. Another name, actually, just to mention, because she comes up a lot, um, is Beverly Houston. Is this a person that you know yep. about? Okay. Yeah, I was about to kind of uh, jump back to that. Beverly Houston was um, uh, an academic... Um, a film studies academic, I believe, in kind of burgeoning media studies as that field was um, getting going, mm-hmm. who passed away. I don't know the. I don't know what the conditions of that. Mm-hmm. You know what happened there, but um, you know has uh, the oh Marsha Kinder wrote Beverly Houston's obit. Yes, in Cinema Journal. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, she she uh, when she passed, she was director of critical studies at USC, um, and passed in eighty eight. Um, I, I don't think we we know why. I guess it doesn't really matter. But yes, massively important. It seems like they worked. I mean, they they published it, together quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I don't know if she was Kinder's dissertation director or not. So uh, this volume started out as an essay. This is the book that we're reading. This volume started out as an essay for the television issue of Quarterly Review, a film and video that Nick Brown was assembling in honor of the late Beverly Houston, who was my closest friend and colleague and longtime collaborator. And so uh, yeah. that's a citation that shows up a lot. Uh, particularly, Houston had a... Um, theorization of television a psychoanalytic theorization of how television works that is very important to kinder's argument here so just this is this is a very fascinating book at least uh, in at first glance because of how openly personal a lot of its investments are yeah absolutely I, openly personal because of that you know essentially trying to analyze what the hell's going on with my kid when he watches tv mm-hmm. you know what i mean which like you know uh this is this is before all of that but for time eternal, human beings have wanted to know what made the Lego racers go. <laughs> you know? So there, there was that. And then also, yeah, I think you're right. It, it's a little bit of a tribute book of like, mm-hmm. what what if we took this theory very seriously and made it mobile and then had it go? Mm-hmm. Um, this is from the obit. Together with uh, Rosalie Newell, Beverly and I formed another extended family at UCLA, like the proverbial three sisters, all studying 18th century English literature under Ralph Cohen, whom he, whom we considered the most brilliant professor at the university and who became our intellectual father. So I get they were students together, I guess mm-hmm. it seems. Uh, our husbands and our fellow students used to tease us, calling us the formidable female troika as we marched <laughs> through the halls of the humanities building, three abreast. Others called us the Marx sisters. <laughs> but we felt a great sense of solidarity in helping each other survive the traumatic jolts of the 60s and in helping each other get our degrees and divorces. So maybe they were divorced. I don't know. Hmm. Or, or uh, you know, um, uh, Kinder and her husband. Yeah. Maybe you were right. Hmm. Uh, the, right. But the reason I say all this, too, right, and, the, and I'm glad you brought this up, is like, I think we try to be very open in this show that, you know, academic books, you read them and it's like, you know, these declarations from on high a lot, right? Mm-hmm. But they're like made by human beings who like live in time, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Like I, if there's a range touch uh, statement about anything that is ever inscribed by human thought into material reality, right? It's like it got made by a person who will one day die or did already die. Uh, and, you know, they have all kinds of other shit going on. And I so I like that this book kind of like, Puts that up front and also uses that as like a way of making mobile some theories, right? Which is like my child is growing up and is growing up in a media culture that I did not grow up in. And it's important to understand it and also to theorize it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I don't want to get on the soapbox and I won't get on the soapbox, but over the past several weeks, we've seen a really substantive, you know, uh, as of a few days ago, um, uh, the U, um, the UNC system, the North Carolina system just, uh, made a statement slash decision that they will not offer, um, certain promotions to professors who are not in STEM. You know, you mm-hmm. can't, you can't, you can't be a, um, distinguished professor anymore if you're not a STEM person, right? Um, I went to a talk the other day from some people in the entertainment industry. It was like a, 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 you know, a B2B kind of thing in which very explicitly any kind of consideration in the classroom for the entertainment classroom that was not like coding or learning how to hold a camera or learning how to um, do visual effects was treated as, as if it were the worst possible thing you could be spending your time doing. Um and so, like, I felt very, um, I don't know, uh, strongly recently over the past several days that, like, I, I, I'm a big defender of thinking about things, and I'm a big defender of thinking about abstractions and theories for the world, right? Like, anyone who tells you that that you shouldn't bother your time thinking about how unrelated things are connected together and, and broader theorizations of the culture that we live in, that is a person who is actively trying to rob you of a tool of understanding the world. And so... Uh, it was a refreshing thing to read this book from, you know, the the late 80s, early 90s to be like, hey, did you know that understanding our world might require us to like abstract out a little bit to see how things connect together, to see how isomorphy functions, to see how you can parallel and place together uh, things that might not seem like they go together immediately. And that will help you understand the world that you live in. Um, I think we are assailed right now in this very moment with people who do not want us to objectively uh, assess the world that we live in. Um, and I, I found that very distressing. So I'm glad that we read this book. Um, and I'm glad that she is doing the kind of work of taking her friend's abstractions and then applying them to the world to see if they work. Yeah. Yeah. This book is, uh, I mean, it's just, it's really something, um, uh, just to some lay some groundwork, uh, before we even like get into the meat of her argument, uh, some of the things she does here in this first chapter is thinking about, so, I mean, it's 1991 when this is published, right? So it's kind of like uh, uh, we are entering uh, the phase of, like, the development of American culture where we're all going to be thinking about, oh, computers, right? Like, computers are happening. Like, the, the word the internet does not show up here at all, uh, but it is clear that Kinder is aware of the internet as like a possibility, right? Of like networked computers and like network computers and digital technologies as things that are going to fundamentally change uh, the ways that media is distributed to us and the ways that it is produced and the ways that we interact with it. So within like the first, literally within the first five pages, she predicts TikTok. Like I said this, I think on, <laughs> I, was, I, I was tweeting about, th- I was tweeting about this on Blue Sky. Um, mm-hmm. I posted about this on Blue Sky because it was so weird. Yeah, within the first five pages, she's like sort of laying out like, here's what's really popular on TV right now. And she looks at America's home, funniest home videos. And she's like, you know, the future of TV is probably this, but with like real time live voting happening on a computer. But whatever, I'm here to talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Uh, and then the other thing that she, uh, really calls is streaming television. She's just like, Hey, here's the way that, uh, uh, communications technologies are developing. Uh, I think in the future, like we're going to have vast content libraries that are coming directly into our homes over these wires. Like it's, it's really, 
wild that she does this, but it's also like completely really beside the point of what she wants to talk about, uh, because the reason she makes these calls, right, the reason she makes these kinds of um, uh, uh, predictive moves is to lend credence to her point that things are changing. And so she then wants to back up and be like, well, how are they changing? Like, what is what is happening now? Uh, and what might it be preparing us for in the future is, is sort of the secondary question. Uh, mm -hmm. So what is happening now? She looks at uh, her son and is thinking like, as you said, Cameron, this isn't the media environment I grew up in. Uh, later in the first chapter, she talks about being, uh, I think she, you know, straight up calls herself a boomer, right? Like the boomer uh, uh, way of like being introduced to the moving image is being taken to the cinema with your family. Mm -hmm. Uh and she's thinking about, well, what's happening with my son who not only is watching the TV on his own, but when I was nursing him, when we brought him home from the hospital, I would sit mm -hmm. and nurse him and the TV would be like, I would watch TV while I was doing that. So like the TV has always been there in his life and he has a relationship to it, a very specific relationship to it. That is not the relationship that I had to the moving image. And what are the kinds of changes that that's going to work uh, uh for him and like for you know his generation and further down the line mm -hmm. uh and the sort of newest term for her is video games right video games are just really starting to take off uh and so she's uh for her uh video games are just like an outgrowth of the home television right that uh uh there is a way that uh T television studies for kinder leads right into thinking about what video games are because that's where you play video games is on the TV. Uh, and just to lay out some quotes here, what is it that she thinks is happening with this younger generation? These happen. These are things that occur early in the chapter because these are the claims that she's going to uh, uh, expound upon and defend. So on TV and games, quote, they position young spectators to combine passive and interactive modes of response as they identify with sliding signifiers that move fluidly across various forms of image production and cultural boundaries, but without challenging the rigid gender differentiation on which patriarchal order is based. Uh, meaning, uh, she thinks about, uh, like, one of her good examples here is uh, her son... Uh, they are out like driving somewhere, right? And her son points at a billboard that has Bill Cosby on it. And he says, Jello, <laughs> very self-satisfiedly, right? I like the, right. yes, she is right. such a good writer too, because you can see it. You <laughs> right. can see this kid be like, Jello. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so, right, the, and if you're uh, a younger listener and you don't know about this, uh, before Bill Cosby was uh, better known for other work, uh, he had, uh, he was like in a lot of commercials in the late 80s and the early 90s, uh, and one of them was Jell-O. So her point is that yeah. the kid has seen enough uh, Jell-O commercials in watching TV that he associates Bill Cosby with Jell-O. So when he sees Cosby on a billboard that... Uh, has nothing to do with Jello. He makes that connection, right? Th those are those like sliding signifiers. Similarly, like being able to recognize the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on TV in the video arcade or like on a, a piece of like you know uh, school like school equipment, right? Like your folders or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's very important, right? I uh, mean, I always I always get a little thrill when I'm like, <laughs> you know, that's paper towels. That's LeBroni, man. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, uh, sort of following on from that, 
another quote, children's television and home video games construct consumerist subjects who can more readily assimilate and accommodate whatever objects they encounter, including traditional modes of image production like cinema and new technological developments like interactive multimedia. Uh, this is a really interesting point, too, because uh, one of her other core claims here is that television, particularly children's television, is constantly presenting itself as, um, she doesn't use this term, but remediating, right? She, she mm -hmm. uh, th thinks of it as being subsumed like a prior discourse, which is like a psychoanalytic way of talking about that, right? That um, And to jump into like just briefly into the second chapter, she points out that uh, uh, there are like at least two episodes of a child of children's cartoons that she looks at <laughs> an episode of the California Raisins and the uh, an episode of Garfield and Friends that both uh, feature parodies of uh, Fellini, like as a character. Uh, and she makes kind of the academic argument that this is television as a form positioning itself as having subsumed like the, the grand cinema of the past, right? Like that, that yeah. cinema is sort of outmoded because television can take the signifiers of cinema and play with them in this way. Uh, and so children, even if like, obviously her son is not like, ah, this is a joke about Fellini, uh, he is learning to recognize uh, or to like uh, uh, think a certain way about who makes cinema, what does cinema represent, uh, and in this case she points out it's like sort of, you know, weird artsy Italians or, you know, like generically mm -hmm. foreign people uh, who are presented as uh, silly and like hard for the protagonists of the cartoons to work with, so things like that. Uh, I had I had uh, two thoughts about this when I read it because mm -hmm. it shows up a few places. The first one is, do uh, you think Marsha Kinder turned away from this work because the Animaniacs just made it too hard? <laughs> <laughs> I was also thinking about the Animaniacs like throughout that entire thing. I was like, oh yeah, like <laughs> and it's like, it's like you go from like a you know like a blunderbuss to a nuclear weapon uh -huh. like in terms of like what's happening there at the size and scale like the animaniacs was my entree into so much popular culture that i had no business knowing about like the hand that rocks the cradle is a thing that i knew about because there's a joke about it in an episode of animaniacs uh, that's so good. And I have now forgotten the second thing I was going to say because I started thinking about the Animaniacs. So, uh, we can, we can move right along. Yeah. Uh, so this also, uh, uh, culminates in an idea that Kinder puts forth what that she calls consumerist interactivity, right? She says that, uh, sort of the digitization of media and of culture has democratizing potential, but she also categorically states that in the United States, at least, all of this potential has been uh, subsumed by corporate interests, like already by 1991. She's like the it's been captured by by the corporate. Mm -hmm. um, well, and what's fascinating about that claim, too, because you're right. And, you know, and this is where she gets to the stuff you were talking about, where she just essentially predicts TikTok. Right. Right. Um, and how she gets there is fascinating because you might think like this isn't pure speculation. This book, despite being like about psychoanalysis and like children's TV for the most part, it is all it is also um, deeply embedded in the business press. Mm -hmm. Like she is there. It's almost an industrial analysis uh, mm -hmm. in terms of like what is the industry saying about itself? 
What are the things that are happening? How is it being narrated in the business papers? And then what are like advertising firms saying? And she quotes a few times people who are essentially saying TV will continue to become more individualistic and more targeted to consumers as long as advertisers are, are on board. And ultimately, they don't use this word, but the platform mm-hmm. will accelerate as far as we can take it. And that happens with cable, right? Like mm-hmm. with cable, the the thrill of cable, right? Uh, for an advertising perspective, which is ultimately what props the system up. It's not cable subscribers. It's the ability to kind of uh, produce enough content to fill the pipeline. Um, is that like if you get someone who watches only MTV2 because they like watching Canadian music videos, you can target them so much better you know, mm-hmm. with uh, specific content. And so she's right. And, you know, and eventually that pays off in TikTok because the fantasy of the social media era, the, the dream that is sold alongside the massive financial speculation of, you know, the early Obama years that fuel the rise of social media, the fantasy being sold there is that, like, you can find everyone in there, what we now call a quote-unquote side of TikTok, and then you could advertise to them there, right? Mm-hmm. Or within their particular kind of stream on Instagram or whatever. So just by paying attention to what business people are saying, she essentially predicts all these things. I do remember the thing I was going to say earlier. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that there's another prediction she makes on accident by talking about her kid and these Fellini cartoons. I don't remember this one. Uh, well, she she does it doesn't get called as one, right? Mm-hmm. But it, but now, like reading it in 2023, I go, oh my god! There's a, a clip going around recently of like some nerds on a podcast talking about like how much they hate Scorsese movies. Mm. They're boring and slow, whatever. Mm-hmm. They are Marsha Kinder's kid, right? Because she says, like, what the part of the thing that's happening when you like put these Italian cinema pastiches into these kids' cartoons, into Garfield, right? In the Garfield cartoon, she talks about specifically Garfield essentially like subordinates Italian cinema and like makes himself the star and becomes the director too. Mm -hmm. That the claim of the cartoon is that it will eat these previous media forms, right? Like we are better and we are not only better, but we can consume them and get all the best pieces, right? And Mm -hmm. then bend it to our own will. There's a fantasy of power. And for her, that is a uh, a kind of anti-castration fantasy and it is a killing of the father right like a hundred percent you know in in the psychoanalytic framework that's there right right um ultimately she does a great read we'll talk about when we get there but you know she says basically like every cartoon in the 80s that you know past the halfway point of the 80s is just about like either dads who aren't there or or you know subordinating the dad who is you know finding (laughs) uh, defeating bad dads and getting good dads you know Mm -hmm. getting on the good side of good dads um, and this is a place where it's happening, right? It's like killing the uh, the the other father, right? Mm-hmm. The bad father and then like loving Garfield, which we all do. <laughs> yes, of course. You know, <laughs> but that's what the thing is, right? Like, uh, and it makes, you know, I, I uh, you know, I love to bash a good Marvel m- movie, right? You know, it's when people say, oh, the Winter Soldier is really good because it takes all those pieces of like the spy thriller or the paranoia thriller. Uh, and then puts it in like the fun form of the Marvel movie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or WandaVision, right? A very similar conversation happened around that, around sitcoms and like mm-hmm. folding those things in. But ultimately, the newer form is able to produce something better. Big quotation marks around that. And then you end up with a subject, right? Who Whose entire mode of being is just slaying the father they think they are supposed to have respect for, right? Like right. Martin Scorsese sucks because uh, it doesn't have Superman in it or whatever, right? right. <laughs> um, but so I just wanted to lay that out there. It's like, I think 
most of what she's trying to do is index culture and how it's changing. And it's hard to read this book and not look around and just see it everywhere. I mean, she's right. She made the right call, I think. Yeah, just another quote here. Uh, this is about the project of the book. I will focus here on how Saturday morning television and home video games and their intertextual connections with movies, commercials, and toys help prepare young players, uh, side, you know, boffing out here, uh, mm. uh, players because she is uh she's saying players here because she is talking about the consumerist interactivity that that i mentioned yeah. right that uh uh we are like these kids are being told that uh you you get to play a game in the world and the game is choosing what you consume and what how you consume it yeah. uh, so this helps prepare young players for full participation in this new age of interactive multimedia specifically by linking interactivity with consumerism and then my note to to that quote is you know 30 three years on and this has become the major mode of contemporary media yeah right 100 percent. and that's i mean that's so fascinating too to think about um i mean that this was this was stuff that they were i don't i don't know uh, enough about like the late 80s early 90s to really get a sense of this but like taking a thing that was tested for children's media and then just scaling it up incrementally over the next decades wow and it also, I, I messaged you at some point while I was reading this, and I was like, Michael, this blows up every theory of interactivity <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that has been, you know, uh, asserted in video games over the past 40 years. Yeah. Um, and, but, and is it in the introduction where she's talking about her kid uh, and lots of children because she pulls in data about this, about turning back and forth from the TV and all that stuff? Is that in yeah. the... Is that's in chapter one? Yeah, that's sort of the next half of the chapter. Like all of gotcha. the stuff that I just laid out is kind of like the big claims. And then the next half yeah. is uh, where she gets into the nitty gritty of both uh, the psychoanalytic frame, um, but also the childhood development stuff that she is uh, intentionally hybridizing with psychoanalysis. Yeah. Yeah. I just couldn't remember if this one's, but basically what she says is that uh, in the thing that, that I'm referring to, and then I'll like kick it over to you if, if, to parse the psychoanalysis if you want to. Mm -hmm. But the uh, essentially she says, look, if you actually pay attention to the way kids watch TV in the 1980s, it's highly interactive. Uh, and what, what she means by that is that kids are constantly very purposely turning on and off their attention and also their desire to connect with the TV. So like, she, one of the things she mentions that's like uh, shared amongst children at that time is if a lot of complicated dialogue is happening, they just turn away from the TV. Mm -hmm. They stop until they hear noises or until they until they he, until they hear oof, something that might pull them back in, right? And so then they turn around and do that. And so, like at its heart, at at the you know uh, central core of television for kids there is a kind of recognition of wax and wane attention and that you need to constantly be, be doing things to pull people back in and get them interacting with it and they're turning these turning these things off and on over and over again that i think that's a pretty strong and substantial theory of interactivity vis-a-vis uh, -vis attention Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that people can do that purposefully uh, and are doing that purposefully. And that runs into other people who've talked about it. I know that Brendan Keough, ha you know, has has a really capacious model for interactivity in his work that I think is really robust. But overwhelmingly, we think like interactivity equals button presses or like ergodicity. Right. Mm -hmm. And like yet again, like the world would be very different if um, cybertext like engaged with a lot of the feminist work of, you know, 1980s and 1990s, right? Like, just just flatly. Mm -hmm. um, 
This book existed from a major scholar writing about games. I don't think this this book doesn't even show up in a negative citation, right? But like, um, I think that would force ergodicity as a theory to be much more robust or capacious in trying to think about is it buttons or not? And ultimately, the is it buttons or not, or is it effort or not, or is it like strings that you're typing in and hitting enter on, right? Like that the 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 primal scene you know let, let's use some of the language michael the primal <laughs> yes. scene of cybertext is so horrifying right uh, it is so productive that i it it sets the tone for the rest of the way that we think of interactivity in game studies and this is a fully competent fully complete different mode of thinking that existing you know a decade before or uh, you know m- more than half a decade before mm-hmm. um and you know you just think about how history might have been different yeah yeah uh and so part of the way that she thinks about this is coming out of the the psychoanalytic tradition and she is uh particularly playing on or like working out of uh freud's theorization of the fort da game uh which if you're not familiar i think i think we've talked about on this show before we we have but i don't remember what episode i think it was in the seth gaines episode okay all right oh that makes sense so i'm not certain but i believe that it was given the context in which it's showing up yeah so uh the story here just shortly right is that uh freud is looking at his grandson uh playing a game where he has like i think it's like a spool or something uh and he's like throwing it and then, like, bringing it back and then throwing it again, right? Uh, and when he has it, he's like, fort. And then when he throws it, he's like, da, it's gone. Or, or like, it's there, right? It's here, there, here, there. Like, uh, and he's just doing this repetitively. Um, and Freud's theorization is that, uh, and this is based on, like, you know, the, the context in which he notices the grandson playing this game and everything is that the grandson is working out his frustration by at being left by his mother. Uh, and that sort of throwing the spool back or back and forth and like getting it, retrieving it and throwing it and making it come and go uh, is a way of working out that anxiety by being in control, by by exerting mastery over something in the place of the absent mother. Uh, and so uh for kinder, this is going to fold out into, like, what is happening when children are interacting with the television and they decide to not pay attention, or then they do decide to pay attention, or uh, she gets into this as well, like, uh, kids who figure out how to pause the VCR, rewind it, fast forward it, uh, but... Even more than that, uh, more fundamentally and more in the sense of psychoanalysis and also from childhood development, uh, she mentions, like, why is it, or not why is it, she doesn't pose it as a question, but she talks about what seems to me the fairly, like, well-known thing, having been around many children in my life. Uh, Why do kids uh, watch the same movies over and over and over again? Mm -hmm. Uh, And she points out, like, her son is watching, uh, like, The Empire Strikes Back on repeat, and he is always calling... (laughs) Because it's on every channel! (laughs) Yes, that's the other thing. The the way that cable works is that it's always on, and on, like, three or four channels. Uh, But he is, like, when he watches it, he, like, calls out characters that he recognizes, right? He Mm -hmm. really loves Chewbacca, and so every time he sees Chewbacca, he says, Wookiee, Wookiee. Uh, and, yeah. and uh, when Chewbacca's not there, he says, where is the Wookiee? Right. Uh, Which I also say <laughs> when I'm watching most, I'm, I was watching killers of the flower moon. Yeah. I was just thinking, where's Wookiee? Right. And that's why Scorsese isn't going to do it. He's the, he never shows us the Wookiee. That's right. Um, that's his, that's his signature trick actually as a director. <laughs> 
is that most movies, when you go and see them, you know you're going to see the Wookiee. And Scorsese says in every interview before, he says, hey, I'm going to show you the Wookiee in this one. Hey, you know, I'm going to show you the Wookiee. You know, people want to come to the movie. They want to see the Wookiee. I'm going to show them the Wookiee. Mm-hmm. Never shows us the way. I went to the Aviator, you know, all this Oscar buzz. You know, I'm going to see it. No Wookiee. Not even one Wookiee. Anyhow, uh, this links up with childhood development because of um, uh, the the sort of like case studies that Kinder pulls in on children's sleep monologues, uh, which I don't know how established this is because I like when I encountered this in this book, I was like, oh, yeah, these things that I'm I've read about before, I guess, because they seem so familiar and I have taken some like psych classes. So maybe that's where it comes from. Uh but uh, the tendency of children as they're falling asleep to talk to themselves and how often uh, their monologues uh, seem to be about, uh, like, just naming people, like, naming people that, like, you know, mommy, daddy, like, grandma, grandpa, and so on and so forth, uh, but then noticing uh, that after the advent of television, children's sleep monologues also include uh, characters from TV and films that the kids are watching. Uh, and she is talking, so the argument here, right, is that in these sleep monologues, we are seeing children, like, developing, uh, they're, they're coming into language, the very psychoanalytic, analytic way of putting it, right? They are, uh, sort of rehearsing, uh, memories and, uh, uh, sort of impressions that they have and, like, connecting those with specific words, with language. They are, uh, coming to speak, right? The, mm-hmm. in, in the same way that Fort Da provides a kind of, like, substitutive mastery, being able to speak the name and imagine the thing is, like, helping the child, like, grow cognitively, uh, yeah, let me, can I read a quote? Sure thing. Uh, this is on page 32, uh, talking about a book called Narratives from the Crib, which is about this, right? So mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a whole book that she's engaging with here. Um, but it does three things, is like, you know, the claim, these these uh, sleep monologues. One, uh, uh, oh, let me just read the whole thing. Um, Emily's early, talking about a child, Emily's early monologues helped her make sense out of three domains of experience. Not only one, the outside world of people, things, and events, and two, herself as a speaking, perceiving, thinking, feeling, acting subject, but also three, language itself with its linguistic and narrative forms. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just, I feel like that's a good summary of the kind of thing that, that you're talking about, right? That it's about language, but also language is that kind of like self-reinforcing image of the self. Right. Like I'm a person and I can recognize Big Bird and Bill Cosby, and I can wonder about the Wookiee and things like that. And the constant naming principle, like, organizes all those things um, for the for the child, supposedly, you right. know, according to this this kind of um, uh, science. Right, right, right. Yeah, you need not uh, uh, take us as like agreeing with all of this because I feel like you know this sort of thing is often going to be limited by time and culture and whatnot. Uh, but, uh, the way that this argument then works, uh, with that under our belts is, uh, Kinder saying that psychoanalysis prior to this point has looked to, uh, and Althusser comes in here, has looked to different, uh, ideological state apparatuses as ways that subjects get formed. So the family being the primary one, you know, mommy, daddy, me, uh, but then also like school and church and like the babysitters and the neighbors and so on and so forth. Right. That uh, the uh, what Foucault would call the family home, school and office. Right. 
uh, that so in in prior eras, like the subject was being formed uh, in conjunction with like institutions that were represented by actual like people that the ch child was interacting with. And that wasn't to say that like children weren't hearing stories and so on and so forth, right? That they didn't have fairy tales and everything. Um, but the uh, visual character of cinema is extremely important here because it like uh, uh, is teaching children a way of interacting with and thinking about images and things that they see uh, and characters kind of in motion, right? These sliding signifiers. So uh, Kinder says, basically, uh, the television has like slipped into the cracks uh, of subject formation and is now uh, sort of influencing the development of subjects in ways that are similar to but also distinct from the ways that ISAs have uh, formed subjects in the past. But the ultimate kind of output, right, is that the television is uh, producing and reproducing a postmodernist subject uh, with particular relations to uh, consumption and commodity fetishism. Yeah. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, and that's like the big theory chapter, unless there's something else you wanted to talk about. I don't think so. Okay. I think, it's, uh, I think that covers all the pieces of it. Um, yeah. Okay. Oh, wait. Okay. Is this the where, where she says, uh, oh, yeah. Hold on. Let me read this for you. This is a fun quote. Mm-hmm. It's on page 23. We can only speculate on what kinds of narratives will be generated by such reinvoicements. But already meta-narratives like the Arabian Nights and A la Recherche du Temps Perdu, uh, In Search of Lost Time, mm -hmm. are being succeeded by proliferating super systems such as Super Mario Brothers, Back to the Future, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, with all of their protean sequels, adaptations, and marketing spinoffs. I love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kids these days know more about Mario and Luigi than they do about Scheherazade. Right, yeah, that uh, uh, somewhere in there, I like condensed these pages right for my quote. Yeah, you uh, did. It's a, uh, uh, but she says that the um, domesticated mass media thus replaced the family as the quote unquote collective mind or the quote unquote uh, primary cybernetic system of feedback loops in subject formation. Right, so. Uh, mm -hmm. This this is how I know about uh, Fellini and Hand That Rocks the Cradle as a child, because the television was my collective mind. I don't think it's in this chapter. There's a really great Super Mario Brothers quotation here where they say, like, she says, like, the humble brothers, Mario and Luigi. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. I think I written, remember They're this. kind of, there's somewhere in here where they're, like, written as if they're saints. <laughs> which is very <laughs> But but anyway, I'll see if I can find it. But yes, uh, yes, it's it is. I found it. Um, <laughs> do you want me to just go ahead it? and read it? Yeah, we read it because you mentioned several things in the uh -huh. same paragraph. Uh, this is from. Oh, I think this is from the second or third chapter. So we're jumping a little bit ahead, but it is a good quote. So uh, in the world of Nintendo and its rival systems, players are almost invariably positioned as active, growing male consumers, whether they identify with the voracious Pac-Man who is empowered to devour more enemies whenever he munches fruity energizers or with the humble Mario and Luigi who are instantly transformed into giant super brothers whenever they consume a super mushroom or with the mutated Ninja Turtles, whose martial arts powers are enhanced whenever they eat pizza. Firmly positioned within patriarchal or traditional patriarchy, all three options seem to be merely elaborate variations on Popeye's reliance on spinach, yet with the crucial supplement of interactivity and the corollary that consumption is a form of growth. That's media studies, y'all. Boom! 
I know that rule. This just this blows up. Like it. Look that paragraph. Oh, that is that that's, it, that's the end of the next chapter. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that thing that you just read, that's everything anyone says about Dark Souls. <laughs> yeah, that's get good. Internal, it's get good. Like if I just keep consuming shit, I'll be real good. I'll be I'll be Papa all, all over everybody. Maybe psychoanalysis is right. <laughs> maybe, maybe I've had it wrong the whole time. <laughs> It's such a, what an alluring system that speaks to everything. <laughs> what, what an all-encompassing thing with no excess. <laughs> oh, maybe I should become a psychoanalysis guy. All right, anyway. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about chapter two, Saturday morning television. Endless consumption in transmedia text, intertextuality in Muppets, Raisins, and Lasagna Zone. I love the Lasagna Zone. I know, it's so good. Uh, so this is uh, uh, basically the chapter that lays out stuff that we've already talked about that um, when we talk about intertextuality here, uh, we mean a couple things or kinder means a couple things. Uh, one is the ways that, for instance, something like Muppet Babies uh, is a cartoon that a child watches, but also presumably the child is aware of the Muppets, like the live action puppet movies, right, from which it derives. Uh, and in some ways, the Muppet Babies cartoon functions as uh, an advertisement for continued Muppet-like films and projects and whatnot, right? So uh, mm -hmm. the kind of like cross-media franchise kind of thing is there. That also points us toward uh, intertextuality as thinking about like commercials, for uh, actual like Muppets toys or whatever, but um, also just, you know, some things that are mentioned here, but uh, interestingly aren't talked about too much because I think really the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles like eat this whole pie, so to speak. Uh, something like He-Man, yeah, right? Do. That like He-Man and Transformers, things that are like uh, made as a kind of full length cartoon advertisements. And then like mm -hmm. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for Kinder is like very much just the apotheosis of all that. Yeah, um, Turtles kind of bends it back the other way. Right. Uh, so, uh, so there's that, and then there's the stuff we already talked about where, like, children's cartoons will often make uh, cultural references for which children don't really have the background to understand, such as, like, parodies of Federico Fellini. Uh, and nevertheless, uh, in these allusions or in these kind of intertextual play, uh, the child is taught a certain way of thinking about the broader media ecology that, as Kinder points out, often positions like whatever television in general and uh, whatever cartoon they're watching as like prior to or sort of subsumptive of uh, mm -hmm. the other stuff that it's uh, uh, like engaging with. Yeah, let me read this. This is on 47. I think this like hits a bunch of the chapter. Mm -hmm. And she does a really good job of explaining, like better than us just summarizing it. <laughs> uh, she talks about just um, she talks about taping a bunch of Saturday morning cartoons on CBS and then like analyzing it. What mm -hmm. I find out, and, and this is what she says she found out. What I found was a fairly consistent form of transmedia intertextuality, which which positions young spectators one to recognize, distinguish, and combine different popular genres in their respective iconography that cut across movies television, comic books, commercials, video games, and toys. Two, to observe the formal differences between television and its prior discourses of cinema, which it absorbs, parodies, and ultimately replaces as the dominant mode of image production. 
Three, to respond to and distinguish between the two basic modes of subject position, uh, positioning associated respectively with television and cinema, being hailed in direct address by fictional characters or by off-screen voices, and being sutured into imaginary identification with a fictional character and fictional space, frequently through the structure of the gaze and through the classical editing com- conventions of shot-reverse-shot. And four, to perce- perceive both the dangers of obsolescence as a potential threat to individuals, programs, genres, and media, and the values of compatibility within a larger system of intertextuality uh, within which formerly conflicting categories can be absorbed and restrictive boundaries erased. And, like, that's that's the chapter, right? Like, mm-hmm. that, it's such a good, like, way of laying it out because it's, like, uh, number one, children's TV trains you to see different orders of the world, right? Like, mm-hmm. you need to be able to understand that, like, cinema and TV are different. You need to understand that... that uh, My Little Pony is not Transformers, and you need to understand that My Little Pony is for uh, a certain demographic, and you need to understand that Transformers is for another one, right? And, like, mm-hmm. that's not good, you know, I, I'm not saying that to be like, oh, of course, and that's great. It's that children's TV exists to make you a consumer, and it wants you to know what you need to buy, right? So, like, mm-hmm. that's number one. Two, it's the thing we've talked about with the, the, you know, absorption of cinema there, right? That, like, this is better than movies, Um and three, it's better than movies specifically because Garfield's going to talk to you. Mm-hmm. You know, Big Bird's going to, Mr. Rogers going to talk to you. All these things are going to directly address you and engage you directly as a consumer. They're going to look right down the barrel of the camera and talk to you and get you really invested in very traditional modes of storytelling, right? Like invisible cinema not only becomes like necessary because it's a mechanism for telling stories, but valorized. It is better. Because mm-hmm. it uh, allows you to be pulled in. And then the four, which is like so key here, it's you need to be afraid that the thing you like is going to go out of style. Mm-hmm. You know, your thing. Are Marvel movies dead, Michael? Oh, no. Is, is the dark universe going away? <laughs> is, oh gosh, is James Gunn going to get rid of my favorite characters in the DC universe? It's the production, the purposeful production of. Fear of being outmoded mm-hmm. uh, and needing to feel like you need to be up with pop culture in order to be like a real human being. That is the media ecology we live in. Like the number of times I see conversations, and this happens on our Discord sometimes, and it certainly I'm seeing it across all forms of social media regularly, is this deep fear that like if you don't play the newest video game, you'll be out of the loop. Mm-hmm. When it's just and that's that's product that is produced like that is a part of subjectivity that is not that's not natural big quotation marks there right but like human beings are not you know early hominids eighty thousand years ago are not like I need new stick <laughs> <laughs> new, new stick important me <laughs> me is and Bob going to get stick. rid of Thag's old stick Thag's favorite <laughs> stick <laughs> like that's not you know what I mean that's not a thing that's a thing that's produced in in uh, consumptive time. Um, and she's so good at being able to be like, it's here in children's TV. I watched two days of TV and I can tell you where it comes from. <laughs> um, so I just really like that a lot. And then there's a little additional maneuver here. That's also really cool, which is that, um, children's TV encourages you to identify with non-humans as much as other human beings mm-hmm. and then to watch them transform into other stuff. So you can understand yourself transforming as a commodity. Yes. Right. Your ability uh, to change yourself uh, is a thing that empowers you and also gives you an opportunity to buy things. Yeah. <laughs> if you buy new Transformers, you'll be transformed. Right. <laughs> because she's talking about these commercials that she's seen for My Little Pony and for other toys, too, where like 
little kids start playing with these toys and they're like, you know, we've all seen these commercials if you're like our age or older of like they touch the thing and there's like a flash or a lightning bolt or like a power noise. And then they're like teenagers, you know, right. they've got like a better haircut or whatever. Right. Right. Um, these used to be all over. We just don't have commercials like this anymore for this kind of product. Right. Now you just watch unboxing videos or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, but this was such a common form and she's right on the money of being like, you'll get to, you will be a slightly older kid. You'll have more responsibility. You'll feel more special. You'll be an adolescent. If you play with Optimus prime, Mm-hmm. And you know what? She's right. That's what happened to me. Yeah, <laughs> I was a twenty. I was a twenty-eight-year-old child, and I played with Optimus Prime. Me, big boy now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, well, and that's that's kind of the chapter. So the other things that happen here that we don't need to get terribly into are just like some psychoanalytic readings of commercials and specific episodes of some things. So in addition to the uh, commercial, the toy commercials that you were talking about, she. Uh, sets the template for it by doing a uh, psychoanalytic, psychoanalytic reading of milk commercials uh, yeah. in the ways that, again, like they should, it's, the specific one she's talking about is like this kid who, like it's a boy who I guess is scrawny and looks like a nerd and then he drinks milk and gets jacked and then there are like girls hanging off of his arms or something. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, uh, that's like more straightforwardly and apparently psychoanalytic than uh like i touched the my little pony and now i'm in like a different set and my hair has been done differently but it's it's the same principle right that uh yeah. coming into contact with the commodity uh changes you and makes you better uh, uh there's a great uh reading of the green ranger uh-huh and not the great i think yeah. we i misinterpreted that in our last episode where i said the green ranger we started talking about uh uh, Power Rangers, but this is yeah. the Green Ranger, a Muppet Babies episode. Yes, it's it's, it's weirdly enough, the Lone Ranger, like mm -hmm. Kermit is fixated on a like old Western and he's and this is the other this is what she's talking about when she says that, um, uh, you know, television is teaching uh, kids to recognize genres, right? That you watch Muppet Babies and Muppet Babies is all about the, the Muppet Babies imagining themselves into new contexts. <laughs> oh, oh, word. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Right. And they imagine like themselves into different genres. So this is an episode mm -hmm. that's all about Kermit imagining himself as a Western hero. Uh, and he gets upset because the Western that he really likes to watch. This is the fear of obsolescence. He's it turns out he's watching the last episode. Oh, no. Oh, no. But then it turns out it's OK because uh, Nanny comes in at the end and tells him that it, the show actually ended when she was a kid. And it's just been running uh, perpetually in syndication since then. That's horrifying. <laughs> uh, I did. So there's a little screenshot. Do you have the screenshot of Kermit? No, there are no uh, screenshots oh. in the digital version, which is uh, a big They're not miss. very many pictures. It's mostly like, here's what the Ninja Turtles are. But there is one of Kermit in his little cowboy hat. Uh-huh. Being a Muppet Baby. And I showed this to my very brave wife. Mm -hmm. And she just said, I love the Muppet Babies. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? There's not a single pop culture thing that showed up more on ranged touch programs than the Muppet Babies. Somehow, yes, I think that's We're true. always talking Muppet Babies. <laughs> I, I haven't seen an episode of the Muppet Babies in 20 years. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I like I liked that the kind of reading there. Mm -hmm. uh, we almost get a reading in this chapter of Pee Wee Herman, and she like hits the brakes on it. Right, she's basically like, too many other people are writing about Pee Wee Herman, so I am not going to bother. Like, there's too it's much... so disappointing to me. <laughs> like, but uh, I, it's funny because uh, even though I was like, 
a toddler in this time period and never really watched uh, Pee-wee when it was like airing, like having been in academia for so long since then, I can like retroactively work like mentally, right? I can be like, oh, yeah, like academics would have been nuts for Pee-wee's Playhouse. Oh, I love Pee-wee Herman. <laughs> I, I uh, you know, Paul Rubens, R.I.P., mm-hmm. uh, uh, recently passed away and I went and watched charitably 15 hours of Pee-wee Herman on late night television programs. Mm hmm. A uh, perfect late night performer, <laughs> like perfect. His yeah. playoff of David Letterman over and over again, uh, which is just like doing absurd things to David Letterman, like making him get in a fake car with him and like drive with a green screen behind them, mm-hmm. uh, is funny. It's good. <laughs> He's a funny guy. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the last uh, reading. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Last mm-hmm. reading is an episode of Garfield and Friends where Garfield. Uh, it's, it's called the lasagna zone. Uh, Garfield gets sucked into the television because he stays up late watching TV. And I think like they dropped lasagna on the satellite dish or something. And this makes him get uh, uh, zapped into the TV. Uh, and this is all about this, this is another thing that I posted to Blue Sky because it's such a beautiful paragraph of talking about like Garfield's castration anxiety. I did not put this in my notes, but I'm going to pull this up just to read it. Uh, yeah, please. please do. Uh... So uh, Garfield's anxious entry into the lasagna zone, that intermediate that intermediate space between reality and play can also be read as a variant of the sleep bargaining genre. Uh, That's when uh, when the child is being put to bed and they like tell the parent, like, tell me a story. Right. Like that's Mm -hmm. sleep bargaining. uh, And it's from childhood development. It gets talked about in psychoanalysis as well. Um, And that's uh, when we talk about castration anxiety, it's it's the fear of death, right? The fear of loss, the fear of having something taken from you. And so uh, this is another way that psychoanalysis positions children as uh, uh, trying to come up with compensatory forms of mastery, sleep bargaining, a way of like keeping myself from the thing I don't want, which is being alone in the dark in my bed. Mm-hmm. And, and the fear of being mastered by others too. Yes. Right. right. You know, so like that's why the figure of the father reigns so heavily in psychoanalysis is that it produces this deep anxiety in a child. Right. right. Uh, but so, yeah. So Garfield's anxious entry into lasagna zone, that intermediate space between reality and play can also be read as a variant of, of the sleep bargaining genre. After a dialogue with John who urges him to go to bed and who warns against staying up all night, Garfield continues the dialogue with the TV set in a liminal state between waking and sleep, compulsively consuming more images and lasagna to keep himself awake and alive. He projects his bedtime fears of castration, obsolescence and death onto the TV set and its stream of images whose transitional objects with which he totally identifies. Thus, not only does Garfield consume TV, but TV consumes Garfield. As Brooks predicts, the repetition compulsion seeks, quote, to master the flood of stimuli, unquote, yet every switch of the dial brings a new short circuit, and every new fiction threatens him with another premature death. Damn. R.I.P. Garfield. Yep. yep. Uh, Heathcliff couldn't even last that long. Don't uh, feel bad. This is another really wild thing is that uh, in this. So the point is that like Garfield has this kind of a uh, weird nightmare, right? Where he gets sucked into the TV and like the channel keeps changing. And every time the channel changes, he's in like a, a new uh, situation of peril. Right. And it's always switching like genres. Uh, but the idea is like, oh, he's like in a new genre. Something almost uh, bad. Something bad almost happens to him. The channel changes. He's in a new genre. 
and now something else uh, bad almost happens to him and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, Kinder says, this is the structure of video games that uh, they are mm-hmm. just like these uh, like timers, right? Where they both provoke and alleviate your anxiety like over and over again in kind of these regimented intervals and in kind of like varied settings. And I thought that was really interesting that she makes that comparison here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then the, the chapter ends with actually that big long quote that uh, I already read about Pac-Man in the, the humble Luigi and Mario, uh, mm-hmm. but also a little bit of a shout out to Stuart Hall in the Birmingham school. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, I think good citation practice here about like pulling in Lynn Spiegel shows up a few times too of other people who are doing similar work in this thing. And, Mm -hmm. and I, I think it's uh, this book does a very good job of being like, here's my theory. Here's what I'm doing. Here's the thing I'm engaging with while very consistently bringing in kind of secondary literature. Um, If you want to like learn how to write an academic book, this is, I think a really good model for that. Mm -hmm. You've Uh, learned about Nintendo's. I did learn about Nintendo's when I read Chapter 3, the Nintendo Entertainment System, Game Boys, Super Brothers, and Wizards. That's right. The Wizard. The Wiz. Yep. Beginning of this chapter is uh, just a history of, like, video games, right? We get Atari, we get the uh, U.S. video game crash, we get the uh, rise of Nintendo in that space, uh, the entry into the U.S. market. All stuff that we've talked about on this show before. Uh, I want to tell you, by the way, as someone who's like taught game history before and had to like really carve around to find what I would call both accurate and engaging histories for, you know, for for games. It's often hard to get both. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the the best summary of the history of Nintendo in terms of like its emergence into the games market that I think I've read. Oh. Uh, it is so efficient. It is so good, and it and it does the thing that most people skip, which is incredibly important. Which is how much money Nintendo spent to acquire its users, mm-hmm. which is so often overlooked. I, you know, a thing that I think is like just deeply a, a real historical piece of information that we have to wrap our head around is the reason that. Our generation and the people slightly older than us, the reason they have such fond memories of Nintendo and the reason that The Legend of Zelda and Super Mario Brothers are like chiseled into their brains for eternity has as much to do with those games being fun and good and all the things that we talk about them has as much to do with that as it does with the fact that uh, Nintendo spent nearly $90 million <laughs> on in 2023 dollars, right? They spent $30 million in 80s bucks. Um, but nearly $90 million, I did the math last night, uh, in terms of advertising, and they did it in markets they thought they could secure first, right? Like, really and truly, a thing that we have to get our head around historically in games is that the reason Nintendo is so supreme and their design is so well-loved and the reason we compare everything to Nintendo is that they purchase their way into your imagination. Like, there is straight up no way around it. And it worked! They made $5 billion in 80s dollars. <laughs> that is the wildest shit imaginable. Like, talk about a return, right? <laughs> yes. Like, <laughs> yeah, great ROI. But they spent, uh, and that's that's with somewhere in the realm of 30 to 35 million consoles sold, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's basically to say they spent about a dollar per, per acquisition. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about it, kind of, kind of uh, regularized that way. Um, and that's not nothing. 
You mm-hmm. know, that's that's a, a pretty big chunk of change, or, mm-hmm. or at least that's that was their initial. Um, I think first couple of years budget. I'm sure they ended up selling way more. I'm sure that thirty to thirty number doesn't quite even out in terms of how much they spent in the front end versus how much they sold in the long tail. But mm-hmm. um, but it, I just think it's so important. Like I'm not like in every instance an economic determinist, but this is one where I really think that we have to reconcile our fact or, or ourselves with the fact that the video game crash was not solved with good software. The video game fash, uh, crash was resolved in the United States with dollars mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and control, right? The, the, um, the chip in the uh, 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 cartridges is also referred to here, right? Mm-hmm. The 10 NES chip. Right, yeah. But anyway, sorry. Sorry to derail us. I just think it's really important. And she re- she tells that story, I think, accurately. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and it's not just that, right? Like, there's... So in terms of, like, not exactly future calls, but uh, you mentioned that she's clearly also reading, like, uh, industry press. Mm-hmm. Um, so she gets into kind of what the future of the NES might be, because it's still the NES. Like, the Super Nintendo is not yet out. There's, like, a brief mention of it as, like, it, like, showed up at a trade show or something, right? Uh, but, uh, she's still talking about the NES, and she, uh, mentions that there are sort of, like, ideas being floated by Nintendo to make it, and this is the, the term, like a networking terminal, right? That uh, uh, plugging a phone line into your NES and being able to do uh, shopping on it or get weather updates and stock ticking and all that sort of thing. Uh, which is just another really, like, huh, like, imagine, right? Like, uh, we, we're, I'm tired of steampunk now. Like, let's start Nintendo Punk, where somehow the NES becomes the default home computer system, like the networked home computer system uh, in the early 90s. And like mm-hmm. that, that changes the course of technological development. I don't know. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, well, it, it, and we got a little bit of that in Ready Player Two, if you remember, around yeah. the sewing apparatus, right? That mm-hmm. there were clearly people who were planning on using the kind of computational capacities of the platform that just kind of didn't go anywhere. Yeah. No, but interesting. Uh, she also does a reading of the uh, film The Wizard with Fred Savage that uh, was basically a big commercial for Super Mario Brothers 3. Yep. Um, it's just like it's Did you it's, ever see this movie. I have not. I never wanted to see it. It seemed like off putting to me. Yeah, me too. I've <laughs> never seen it. Maybe we should do it for the show. <laughs> maybe that'll be that'll be good actually we should yeah let's bookmark that it does seem wild it does like the plot i didn't know it involved like a smaller child being abducted by his older brother fred savage yeah and then like made to become a video game whiz across the country uh-huh seems not cool yeah and like yeah it seems like there's a lot going on in that movie yep. uh speaking of like you know Nint- oh bridges is in it though i oh, love that guy just- Speaking of Nintendo buying their way into your hearts and minds, uh, she does mention also like the very specific demographics that Nintendo markets toward in the U.S. Uh, She says her terms are, you know, the games get uh, masculinized and Oedipalized in the United States, which means that they're being targeted to boys and like specifically appealing to boy anxieties Mm -hmm. uh, and also targeting uh, the white middle class, the people who are most likely to already own like a home computer or, you know, some other type of like digital entertainment system. Um, uh, and that's, yeah, it builds on the VCR. Yeah. as part of what, what kind of comes through here, right? Like, uh, if you're already 
investing in in-home entertainment mm, broadly. Right. Um, and whiteness and middle classness get associated with that economically. Now, whether that is accurate, right? Like, is that actually the demographic that uh, or, or is most um, allured by it? Who knows? Mm-hmm. But that's the assumption of the advertising and marketing world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she goes on to talk about how games and she, you know, dips dipping here into like childhood development stuff again, that games are, uh, thought to be a kind of, um, cognitive accelerant, right? That like playing games is a way to, uh, get kids to like think more or think in different contexts or think better, uh, that, that there's a way that access to play into games is overall beneficial to a child, uh, that Mm -hmm. it makes them better thinkers in whatever way. Uh, and this then fol- uh, uh, folds into uh, her theorization of what she calls the super entertainment system, which is what we might call like a transmedia franchise. Uh, I think it, super entertainment is so much better. It, I was I'm thinking I'm, I, you know, I've got that Homestuck book. and I'm like, maybe I should just like just call it a super entertainment system instead of a franchise. I wonder if they'd let me get away with that. I think that's better because yeah. it is. It, this is a more descriptive thing because franchise you know, in the terms of like uh, the major franchises we talk about, which is like um, Star Wars, right? That kind of thing. They are serial and they are um, additive in linear time, right? Like mm-hmm. four, five, six, one, two, three, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but for like a thing that's like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, it doesn't progress linearly at all. It pr- produces like. I, you know, I don't know, uh, it like polyps, right? You know what I mean? They, it just <laughs> yeah. kind of like develops outward from some sort of central hub in random directions. And I think that's also how Homestuck works too, right? It's mm-hmm. it, it came out in order, but that's not how it's like additive portions function. You know, it's not like, and here we stop to go watch Homestuck Rebels. You know, like uh, that's not <laughs> how, it, how it goes. Uh, it's like over here, here's like a comic book or whatever. Right. Um, so, so I do think I don't know. I I think that this is a useful system mm-hmm. uh, for kind of thinking through. Uh, it's something different from transmedia. I do think. Right. So I don't know. Maybe yeah. maybe this is helpful. Can I read a passage here? Yeah. Go ahead. This is from a little bit earlier. Um, because she's talking about those pro-social things that games can do. You know mm-hmm. that that you can cooperate. You can pass things around. It can like make you uh, learn how to deal with other people easier. Right. And also, it can concentrate some feelings. This is the quote. Even in those homes, such as my own, where the father is present nurturing. See, that's why I was thinking about the divorce thing because mm. of this passage. But yeah. also, you can be present nurturing and also divorced. Well, uh, I, I also think, this might, I think this might have been a second marriage. Ooh. Interesting. Someone give us all the rundowns yeah. on Marcia Kinder's divorces in the 1980s. No, you don't. Please <laughs> don't do that. But it is interesting. It comes up. Yeah. Even though some such as my own where the father is present nurturing, the games can help boys deal with their rebellious anger against patriarchal authority. For example, when I asked my son, Victor, whether he ever dreamed about video games, he told me that the previous night he had dreamed that he was sad because his daddy spanked him and he was crying. So he became Raphael, the most emotional and rebellious of the four Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and went inside the video game, the way Garfield has gone inside the TV set, to save the other turtles who were being held captive by the villainous patriarch Shredder. <laughs> yeah, you, you ever transposed your dad mm-hmm. into Shredder? <laughs> and no. it's also fascinating that he, the previous night he dreamed that his dad had spanked him. Mm-hmm. Right, he had spanked. Yeah, right, right. But, it was so a dream spanking our, that led. To our the, brains are wild, Michael. Yeah, they are. They're weird. You know, all kinds of stuff. But I like that. They are weird. Mm-hmm. Brains are weird. 
They're so weird that psychoanalysis is insufficient to explain them. That's my position. <laughs> uh, there's oh, it, I think this chapter is also, and it's this specific part. It does a move that I really like, where she she's talking about some book that the name of which I didn't write in my notes, but it's like some other like child psychologist types. Who are basically like, what's TV doing to children's imaginations? And the takeaway that they have is like TV might be making children less imaginative. Uh, their claim for this being that like children who have like watched TV recently tend to recycle things from the TV show that yeah. they just watched rather than like come up with something original. And she's like, so this idea of originality is like historically situated in the romantic period. And it's not something that we should necessarily ascribe as like a universal quality of imagination. Uh, you know, it's a, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a big, big Michael move there. Like Michael's a mm -hmm. fan of that kind of thing. Uh, but then she does say, but it's worth thinking about what does it mean? Uh, what, what kind of subject is being produced, uh, through this kind of, uh, different way of interfacing with the imagination? Um, uh, she says, uh, this is again about the super entertainment system. It quote works to position consumers as powerful players while disavowing commercial manipulation. And then a little bit later, quote, it levels all ideological conflict within the single narrative of an all encompassing game. And it valorizes super protean flexibility as a substitute for the imaginary uniqueness of the unified subject. So uh, in like, you know, modernism, uh, where like cinema reigns supreme and we have like the unified subject or whatever, uh, uh, you know, a single person and, and uh, uh, imagination is about originality and sort of like, uh, you know, your your own self or your own individual self. Uh, the postmodernist subject is more about what she calls the super protean flexibility of being able to change, to shift, and and being able to choose to change and shift in certain ways. And uh, that is uh, a, a substitute for the imaginary uniqueness of the unified subject, right? So you, you give up the unified subject, but you get this kind of uh, multi-part subject, right, or, or sort of like fractious subject. Uh, that is conceived of as being more responsive, uh, more adaptable than uh, the older modernist subject. It's good. Yep. Uh, it's good stuff. Chapter four, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the super system and the video game movie genre. This is just about the turtles. Yep. And super systems, but mm -hmm. mostly about the turtles in case you aren't aware of the turtles. Yeah. Yep. Basically, like all the stuff that we've talked about up until this point, like this comes together with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as like the extended case study. Yep. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of new stuff here. Um, she talks about the cartoon. She talks about the movie. Uh, she talks about like uh, her sons. This was maybe the most interesting stuff to me is like the ways like the the bits of turtle merchandise that her son has a negative reaction to uh because like uh the colors aren't right like it's i don't i think it's like a t-shirt or something maybe that he gets where uh the colors of the bandanas aren't right for the weapons that the turtles mm -hmm. are using and he doesn't like that shirt like he won't wear it and then there's one that is like a folder that he gets from school that <laughs> has this yeah, right this so much it has the turtles like in what she calls an escheresque design where there's you know there's four of them so there's like one in each corner uh and he he this he finds this so distressing that he asks for it to be thrown away and she her theorization of like why this is right her theory of why this is is that um because the turtles are each positioned in like a different corner they can't all be aligned like together 
as like a set. Yeah, that like that there's a proper mm-hmm. you know, like a proper representation of the turtles because this is outside of the proper. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't. You gotta, and you know what? Kids, right? <laughs> if I like Michelangelo, which I do, of course, it's my favorite turtle. Mm-hmm. Who's your favorite turtle, Michael? I mean, probably Michelangelo. Michelangelo is the most popular turtle. That is backed up by the data in this book. Yeah, oh, of course he is. He's fun loving. <laughs> he likes pizza. This uh-huh. is Calabunga. Uh, the uh, but you know, if you like him and he's on the he's upside down, you can't see him when your thing's right side up. Right. That just sucks. That's bad design. I want to see all my turtles. <laughs> Don't hierarchize my turtles by virtue of putting some upside down and some right side up. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's as complicated as she's making it, but I understand where this kid's coming from. I do like that she's like, and I couldn't even hide it. I had to throw it away. Yep. <laughs> uh, the other big takeaway, which we've gestured at, uh, is that she says for all this kind of super protean stuff that's going on in these um, shows and in these media, uh, the thing that they tend to fall back on and reinscribe hardcore again and again is binary gender divisions. So, uh, you know... She doesn't have much to say about that other than like, isn't it interesting (laughs) that for all of the ways that we are like having children being constructed as subjects who have all this flexibility, all this choice, uh, they must nevertheless always fall into one of these two categories and that their psychic life must be founded upon this kind of primary division uh, that precedes their lives. Mm There's a advertisement that she cites from here that just says "Give in to the turtle urge," <laughs> which I've gotten tattooed on my face. Good, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the end of this chapter actually previews what's going to happen in the next one, where she talks about uh, the obvious like influence of like Japanese culture on the whole concept of a teenage mutant ninja turtle, and like the rise of of like ninjas in the late eighties. She says that uh, the one of the or you know suggests that one of the reasons teenage teenage mutant ninja turtles is so successful is precisely because it is uh, kind of implying this cultural fusion uh, that is just very much in the atmosphere at the time. Quote, the TMNT movie breaks with the traditional conception of Orientalism, where one is defined strictly in opposition to the alien other and instead adopts a postmodernist form of intertextuality and accommodation, fluidly consuming and becoming the other. Uh, I would say that this is still like Orientalism, but it's a different kind of Orientalism. And unfortunately, I don't like the last chapter. Yeah, the last chapter is not great. Um, because it, it, it ultimately, we don't even have to summarize it very much, right? Like, the final chapter is, what's going on in Japan? Mm-hmm. Like, what's up with that? Although it is interesting that, do, do you remember the um, Christopher Patterson's word for, like, being built for global distribution? No, I don't, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I just can't I just can't pull that word, uh, the kind of keyword from Open World Empire for that. But this is kind of like a prelude for that, which is interesting, which is mm-hmm. like because she says, like, hey, did you know one of the next places of massive transformational change around all these things is Japan? And uh, because of that, we should maybe look to what they're up to in order to understand the oncoming media culture. And that that's the correct call, right? I mean, mm-hmm. she is right. And she's very careful too to be like, look, this is not this is not being like, oh, no, Japan is scary, but like they are a major player and we should pay attention to them to understand these transformations. But unfortunately, it does kind of come off as, oh, no, Japan is scary. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like I think in a 
kind of a sad way. It, it did actually, you know, lead me because I was like, what is the word for like fear of Japan, like moral panic around Japan, right? Mm. And so, you know, like sinophobia for for China, mm-hmm. right? So I was like, is there a nipponophobia? And there is, there is a word, nipponophobia. Oh, okay. Isn't that fun to learn? Yeah. And it's great to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, Anti-Japanese sentiment is the word that's often used, harkening back to like the 1945 right. stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently on Wikipedia, is it, Wikipedia puts it all under anti-Japanese sentiment. But yeah, nipponophobia is also like a real word. Yeah. Um, but it's got that kind of flavor to it. And she's basically just talking about the, the transformations that are happening in the Japanese entertainment industry, particularly moving away from cinema and into more ambivalent forms and kind of distributable forms and more profitable forms like pachinko, Mm -hmm. which did happen, and arcades, which did happen, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of distributing the domestic cultural dollars in different ways. And that's true. That did work out. So, like, I think that um, I don't think very many of the things that she actually writes about this chapter are wrong or problematic or whatever word you want to use but the overall vibe of it's a little little out of date feeling yeah well and it's it's very much being written so the the i think one of the big uh things in the background of this chapter is that um oh gosh panasonic is the company but what was its name i i had to look this up and now i can't even remember because she refers to it by its old name but it's panasonic now and panasonic was a brand then is it matsushita she does talk about Matsushita Corp quite a bit. Yes. Okay. So uh, that is Panasonic today, but it used to uh, until 2008. That's how long it was uh, Matsushita. Oh. oh, so it was kind of um, like the parent corporation for yes, Panasonic. Right. And Panasonic was like the brand maybe or the subcorp. Yeah. And I think I think I'm remembering this right because she goes through a whole bunch of um, Japanese corporations and kind of like yeah. uh, what's going on in Hollywood. But I think Matsushita had just bought Universal, mm-hmm. which was like, you know, oh, my gosh. Like a Japanese corporation has bought one of the titans of American Hollywood. What's going to happen now? Uh, And clearly she is kind of suspecting that we're going to see more of this, like more and more uh, U.S. companies bought out by um, foreign interests. Mm -hmm. And as you said, she's very clear, like this is not about uh, being afraid of Japan. Uh, And and in fact, like she seems to think that this is a good thing. (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, Well, yeah. She like like, does this like weird maneuver from she ends up saying things that are like kind of weirdly offensive, but in a positive way. Right. right. Like she's like, hey, did you know that Japan doesn't have nearly as many robotics experts that we do, but they've really unlocked cooperation in a way that we haven't. You know, they're so strongly collectivist and non-individualistic. And, like, of course, there are radical cultural differences there. But, like, when you start, when when you come out the gate with, like, you know, the wonderful hive mind of Japan, it's all mm-hmm. that stuff that Christopher Patterson is talking about and also that Tara Fickle talked about the race card, right? These, like, uh, American cultural stereotype tropes that get applied to Japan and China in particular. And, and, but we're getting that through her, but as valorization, right? Mm-hmm. Like they've done it so well, mm-hmm. but they're so good at it. I think you're right. Like all the argument here and all the business claims are, are correct. But at the core, there's this kind of like collectivism versus individualism debate that's going on and a little bit of moral panic about like, and what if their media industries eat our moral in- you know, media industries? What'll happen? Maybe it'll be pro-social and good. Right. And it's like, I don't, you know. Okay. Right, right. Yeah, like my t- two takeaways is that I, I have at least uh, one is that um, 
the other thing to keep in mind is that this book is coming out right at the moment that the Japanese economic bubble bursts and it Japan enters the what they call the lost decade. Right. So uh, Kinder is like writing uh, at the very end of this phenomenon that she's describing, but she is clearly thinking that it's going to go on for much longer. Right. This kind of um, like Japan moving into uh, U.S. Uh, interests in a real big way. Um, so that's just something that I thought was interesting, right? That this, like, the timing, the way the timing works out on this. But the other thing that I think I, like, can deduce about the picture of the world that Kinder is uh, hoping for here is, like, basically, uh, if, if like, capitalism is going to become con- increasingly interconnected globally, this is going to hopefully put uh, insular hegemonic powers like the United States necessarily into contact with other cultures that is maybe going to make them more open-minded and like more willing to collaborate and be collectives and whatnot. And well, we see how that's kind of turned out, but uh, I guess I'm not going to blame her for being an optimist in 1991. Yeah, of course. Right. It's the end of history. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then we have two appendices. Yep. I didn't have any notes on these, but they're they're interesting yeah. just to hear like what these kids are saying about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, they're basically just like the data of talking to kids. So the first one is like after they watch a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles um, tape, basically mm-hmm. like an episode. And then they uh, and then she just talks to these kids who are like at her house, like her son's friends, I guess, right? Neighborhood kids. And just like ask what they're up to, what they're about. Um you know, I agree with some of these kids. You know, uh, question 14. Why do you think they are so popular? Kid B says, the movie and the turtle are neat. <laughs> and I agree. I also think the movie and the turtle are neat. Mm-hmm. And these kids are little, too. You know, they're like eight eight to ten or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the so there's yeah, the two appendices. One is uh kids at her son's daycare which is like the oh um, that's right that's it's right. like it's like the U- usc uh like daycare facility right for faculty and she gets oh into- yeah i got i got them flipped that yeah. this this sample set is ages five and nine yeah okay yeah. right and then the second set is like going to the arcade and just like interviewing kids that she finds there yeah but, the, but also, she seems to have familiarity with some of them. Because right. she, like, corrects some of their information. One kid says he doesn't know what his father does. Yeah. And and, and it's in um, brackets, advertising executive. <laughs> <laughs> but but those get a little bit older. Like, that goes from, like, 10 to 14 or something like that. Right, right. right. Yeah, no, and I think, I like, I, I don't think she's just, like, picking up random kids and, like, interrogating them. It does seem like she's at least, like, getting permission or something. Yeah, hope. Because, I mean, she knows she knows enough about, like, their backgrounds, apparently, to, like, make observations. Like, the kids from, like, uh, 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 worse off socioeconomic conditions uh, are sort of clearly uneasy answering questions about, like, how much merchandise they own, right? And things like right. that. She, she yeah. Somehow she has access to their backgrounds enough to make those kinds of observations. Yeah, she had them uh, produce their tax documents beforehand. <laughs> um. Yeah, some of these things are, when you were playing TMNT, do you ever talk to the other players? What kinds of things do you say? Five of them said yes. I'll just read them in order. Like, the water, our mom, school. Get him. Look out. Hurry up. Get that guy. Go after him. Do you have any quarters left? 
I try to tell them something's coming, like a foot soldier is going to jump out of the sewer and throw the sewer top. <laughs> Two kids said, sometimes. How do you beat this guy? What level does, does this go up to? Hello, why do the turtles jump in without your making them? And some said, no, I just pay attention to the game. <laughs> but when we went to Pizza Hut with my cousin, I was talking to her to show her how to play it. You know, so that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Why do you that's think fun. they made the game so that four players can play at the same time? So it would be easier to play. Yeah. Because they have all these men attacking you at once. So other people can get a chance to play with their friends and family. They thought it was easier for little kids to play. So it can be more funner. Because it would be harder for just one player. Cuz. So they can beat the bad guys. Cuz there are four turtles. I don't know. All of these have the option of I don't know, and it's funny to me that some kids are just like, I don't know. Right. Please leave me alone. Like, whatever kid said there are four turtles, hit the nail on the head. Yep. <laughs> you're, you're, you got it. I also, there's an earlier one where uh, they she has them watch a, an episode of the TV show, the kids at the daycare. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And uh, it's an episode that's focused on April O'Neil. And I, she, she like asks some of the kids if they like April O'Neil or like why they like her. And there's one, uh, kid who says because she writes about she writes about things i like to read huh as if she's just i'm familiar with the works of april o'neill famed reporter and that's what's fun about these two right just to read through them is like children when it just it reveals to you social pressure in a right? very direct way which is like when you ask children a thing that they do not have an answer to or like obviously is inappropriate for their like social position as like you know, uh, creatures that are, you know, owned and operated by adults, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they'll just make some shit up. Mm -hmm. And that's like most people. You know what I mean? We don't grow out of that. Most people just make shit up. There's like a whole universe <laughs> of like how to how to pretend like you've read books. You know what I mean? Like, because uh, that came up as a as a, um, a Q and A. What just King things or something? At one point, someone was like, mm -hmm. "How do you how do you deal with people who ask books you don't read?" And I just tell them I haven't read the book. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like these little kids, they're doing that thing. I, I like this one from the arcade, too, uh, because of how consistent the answers are. Mm -hmm. uh, she asked, how much money do you usually spend at the arcade and how much have you spent so far today? <laughs> and the kids, they make up the wildest numbers for how much they normally spend. The first kid says $50, but today I've spent a quarter. <laughs> and they're all like that. Some kids yes. are more honest. They're like $5 today. I've spent $1.25, you know? Mm -hmm. One kid says $100. Today, $2. <laughs> They're just all being thrifty that day. Uh, one kid says, not much. Not much today. Oh, no. He says, not much normally. Today, about 100 cents in brackets. He spent $25. <laughs> uh, what does mutant mean? Not human. A cross between two things. They used to be regular turtles, but some slime hit them, and they turned into big turtles with muscles. Teenagers. And then nine of them responded, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not even taking a guess. You're not going to get me. <laughs> big Pharma's not going to get me being wrong about a mutant. You know what I mean? What's the, what's the name of the ones from uh, Secret of the Use? You remember? Uh, uh, the, the ones that Shredder makes? Yeah. I don't remember what they're called in the movie, but they're like weirdly modeled off of Rocksteady and Bebop from the cartoons. 
Well, no, because they're they're oppositional to Bebop and Rocksteady. Because one's oh. a snapping turtle and one's a uh, something else, like a weird wolf dog thing. Yeah. Well, I just remember the thing where he's like, "They're babies," right? Because <laughs> they are babies. They get big and strong, and they go, "Mama, mama, yep. mama." They're babies. <laughs> That's funny. Yep. God, what what are their name? Not not Tokar. Is that one Maybe. of them? These kids would be smoking me right now. I know. Well, that no, movie hasn't not. come out, so they wouldn't know at all. I know, but if the, they to, Toka and Razor. Oh. Here we go. Babies. What do they eat? They eat like little treats, sweet treats. They eat donuts. Donut. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. All right. Well, patreon.com slash range touch. Mm-hmm. That's how you can uh, support this show and support all the other shows we do. You can get access to all kinds of fun little stuff. At $3 a month, you can get access to our notes. And at $5 a month, you can get access to a bunch of bonus episodes and things like that that we do in our other shows. If you enjoy listening to this show, I promise you, you'll enjoy listening to our other shows. uh, Like Just King Things or Shelved by Genre. uh, Or that's it right now. Yeah. Yeah. But all shows where we regularly discuss the Muppet Babies. Yeah, weirdly enough, they come up. Uh, We just finished Too Much Future, our kind of like long deep dive into the Fallout games. And so that's complete. So you go check that out if you wanted to. YouTube.com slash ranged touch is where that lives. You can also get a podcast feed of it if you go to the Patreon. Um, Mages and Murder Dads, the show that Danny and I do about, what do you call it? The Baldur's Gate games. Okay, yeah. Yep, I got there. Uh, the Baldur's Gate games, we will be starting that back up probably in the new year. We're going to be recording it soon, um, and we'll be playing Baldur's Gate 3. So if you're excited to hear someone uh, talk through Baldur's Gate 3 kind of critically and with a lot of knowledge from the previous games, Danny and I will be doing that for you. Michael, we don't know what we're doing as our next book, do we? No, but you did promise, I guess, that this was going to be the Winter of Children. I did say it was the Winter of Children. Is but it, I don't know what other books about children and games there are. I know. Uh, maybe the Winter of Children only lasts a month. That's right. Because children are short. Uh, <laughs> we can look into it. We'll look into it. We'll decide. We I, don't know yet. We're, we're we going to reread decide. Seth Giddings' book. <laughs> That's right. We'll just go for it again. The, fir- <laughs> the first, uh, uh, you know, we'll do it two times in a row and we'll go for the three-peat. Um, but, uh, no, well, that information will decide before this episode comes out. And so it'll be, uh, announced on some social media platforms. Michael, by this point, by the time this episode comes out, we're going to have a, uh, blue sky account. Uh, I guess I'll make, yeah, I guess I'll make us a blue sky account. I think I already promised that in a previous episode of some other thing. So yeah, I think we are, we do need it now. I'll make a blue sky. I'll figure Mm -hmm. out how to make a TikTok. Mm -hmm. I'll make a friendster. Uh, yep, you gotta do that. And we're also on co-host. Yeah. Co-host.com slash range touch. You you post a lot over co-host. there. Co-host.org. I'm sorry, co-host.org slash ranged touch. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, you post quite a bit over there. Fun stuff. I think we get actually a lot of people chatting it up, leaving mm-hmm. comments and stuff. And uh, if you like co-host, you should uh, follow us over there. We'll be back in one month with the next episode that we don't know what it is. Uh I don't know what our catchphrase is here. What's the sign-off? The social is predicated on its exclusions.